If you wanted to, you could spend a good chunk of your day watching live streams of what exactly is going on with the British royal family right now. Ever since the Queen died at the age of 96, a strict order of ceremonies and speeches has started playing out. This is something that has been planned, it's no exaggeration to say, for decades. There's an entire unit in the cabinet office of the United Kingdom government called the Bridges Department. And that, of course, refers to the fact that the code names for these operations are London Bridges Down in the case of the Queen. You also have Fourth Bridges Down in the case of other members of the senior royal family. Charlotte Ivers is a columnist for the Sunday Times. When she says the British government is prepared for this moment, she means you can go online and find out exactly which minute the Queen's coffin is going to leave one location for another. This has all been planned to pinpoint precision, and we are now seeing the outcome of that, really. Charlotte has followed along as Prince Charles was proclaimed king live on TV, the first time that's ever happened. Yesterday, Charlotte tried to watch as the king made an appearance in front of Parliament, another first for him. And for many people, most people in this Westminster Great Hall, a first time to sing the national anthem to the words, God save our gracious king. But the thing is, despite this national period of mourning, Charlotte's busy. I did watch them briefly, but I was running around reporting on various other things as well. It's a rather bizarre situation to be in, of course, because we are in a time of national crisis on other fronts as well. We have an energy crisis that we are facing in the winter, obviously economic difficulties, obviously challenges within the National Health Service after the pandemic. At the same time, the monarchy has been thrust into a sudden metamorphosis. The country the House of Windsor presides over has been pushed to a brink. A few days before the Queen died, a new prime minister, Liz Truss, got sworn in. She's taken the helm in the middle of an economic crisis, with sky-high inflation driven by surging energy costs due to the war in Ukraine. Truss had been laying out her plan to cap those costs when Operation London Bridge went into full effect. What's the word you'd use to describe this moment in British history if you were being diplomatic? Or even if you weren't, like transition, transformation? It's hard to say at this stage because I think we don't quite know where we'll be in a couple of weeks' time. What happens in the coming weeks and months is an open question. I think certainly everybody in the UK is waiting for a winter which we're expecting to be quite grim. Today on the show, the UK is in a period of mourning. For now, how long will this calm last? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around.
As Charlotte Ivers said, even before Queen Elizabeth died, the UK was bracing for trouble. Brexit is kind of like a slow leak in the tires of the British economy. When bumps in the road come along, like the war in Ukraine, the United Kingdom has got a rougher ride. So while countries around the world are facing inflation and higher energy prices, in England, the mood's been especially dark. I was speaking to some friends, colleagues, I suppose, who do focus groups, and they were saying at the start of the summer when they spoke to people about inflation, about energy prices, about the cost of living, they would get really big concerns raised in the working class focus groups. But by the end of the summer, you were getting the same concerns raised by people on middle to high incomes. It really does feel as if everyone is about to be impacted by this. And then I also heard someone else who does focus groups talking about people actually crying in those focus groups when talking about the winter and the concerns that people have ahead of that. And he said to me, that's not something that he had ever seen before. So there is this sense that something rather bad is coming down the track. Yeah, I have a friend who lives in London who came to visit over the summer and said, yeah, we're just ex- we've been told to expect like maybe the heat. <laughs> maybe you won't have heat for some of the winter. You know, maybe, you know, there's going to be rationing of some kind. And he, he just sort of shrugged like we don't know what we're going to do, basically. My understanding is that the feeling of unease in the UK isn't just about energy prices, but it's sort of wrapped up in inflation and wages as well. Can you just explain the summer and how it felt in the UK going into this moment we're in now? Absolutely. So, of course, a lot of the inflation we're seeing does come from energy prices, but it's not just from there. And wages largely across the public sector in particular will not be going up in line with inflation. And as a result, we have seen a lot of industrial action over the course of the summer. We saw train strikes. We saw strikes by barristers to support criminal barristers who are on relatively low incomes for public defence. And then as well, we're expecting to see further strikes probably over the course of the year. There was some talk about strikes by nurses, strikes by teachers. And there is just this overall sense that we are seeing something that is gathering momentum. We are seeing a lot of different industries in different parts of the public sector increasingly concerned about the cost of living and about whether their wages will be able to go up in line with that. Earlier this week, I promised I would deal with the soaring energy prices faced by families and businesses across the UK. Last week, on the same day the Queen died, Liz Truss, the newly installed British Prime Minister, announced plans to freeze the price of gas and electricity for the next two years. This will save a typical household £1,000 a year. A massive government subsidy for heating bills is perhaps not what Liz Truss expected to be her first big policy initiative. That is a remarkable move away from how she started off as a contender for the Conservative leadership. Right, she's a Conservative. She is a Conservative. She's a free market Conservative as well. At the start of the leadership campaign, she was talking about wanting to prioritise tax cuts, wanting to stop handouts. Then we had a bit of a shift towards her talking about handouts for the least well-off, although obviously she didn't use that terminology. And now we're looking at this absolutely huge intervention, probably going to cost £100 billion, maybe up to £150 billion, essentially holding energy prices at the place where they are now, rather than allowing them to go up. 
it feels like pulling the emergency brake. Like it's, <laughs> you know what I mean? It doesn't solve the bigger problem. It just addresses the urgent need, which is because of the war in Ukraine, energy prices have gone way up. Folks are looking at looming costs for the winter and they're scared. That is exactly what we're seeing happen. And there were some parts of Liz Truss's speech as well that spoke about longer term energy security, spoke about nuclear, spoke about North Sea gas and oil and how we can become more energy independent. But frankly, all of those projects are long term projects. And the increasing sense that I got from speaking to people within Liz Truss's team and also people within the civil service over the last couple of months was just this escalating sense that some sort of emergency button must be pressed, that something hugely drastic must be done. Otherwise, you would see people in a state of real anxiety going into the winter and potentially in some cases a real state of destitution once we actually got there. It just doesn't, it's so wildly anti what I would think of as conservative. It's so strange to hear you say it. It feels very strange because this is not just a standard conservative politician. This is Liz Truss, who prides herself on being non-interventionist, on being low tax, on being pro-free market. And now we have this huge, huge intervention in the energy market, which I think speaks to partly the political pressure on her, but partly also the scale of the problem that is being faced. It is remarkable, I have to say. When I first read on the front page of the Times that this was what Liz Trust was planning, it felt very surreal having heard her previous speeches at the start of the leadership campaign where she talks about her priority having to be tax cuts rather than further subsidies. But what is not affordable is putting up taxes, choking off growth and ending up in a much worse position. I will cut taxes to reward hard work and boost business-led growth and investment. My tax cuts will decrease inflation. Really? Because what they Can do... You punch a single well, there's so much focus right now on the passing of the Queen and the new King, but I do want to really dig into Liz Truss and who she is for some of my listeners who might not know, because my understanding is that she's a person who's going to really have to get in there once this period of mourning is over and try to figure out how to fix what's not working right now. So can you just introduce me to her and who she is? Of course. So Liz Truss is a fascinating figure because she is the longest serving cabinet minister. And of course, we've had the same party in government for the last... So a survivor. (laughs) She is a survivor. She's a survivor in a way. She is the ultimate establishment figure because she has been at the heart of this government and this party that has been in power for over a decade now. But there has always been this sense, and it's very smart how she's managed to do it, that she is an outsider. She's always been very good at making it clear that actually she probably is a little bit more free market, a little bit more capitalist, a little bit more pro-low taxes than the current conservative leadership, whoever that has been, but always managed to also appear loyal in public as well. It's all been very wink and nod. Well, she's kind of like gone back and forth, right, in terms of what she is for and against? Like, my understanding is that she was against Brexit, and now she's in charge of implementing it, like, as as just one example of where she's kind of gone back and forth. Yes, I take a slightly different view on Liz Truss to some people, because a lot of people talk about the fact that when she was 19, she was a liberal Democrat, she was a Republican. There's a excruciating speech of her as a teenager where she talks about 
wanting to get rid of the monarchy. We do not believe that people should be born to rule or that they should put up and shut up about decisions that affect their everyday lives. Do you conference? Such a funny moment for someone with that kind of speech to assume leadership. It is rather. Largely speaking, when I speak to people who have known Liz Truss for a while, what they say to me about her is that they feel like she's actually been quite consistent. She's always been a little bit rip it up and start again, a little bit anti-establishment. The one exception to that, and the one you highlight rightly, is her position on Brexit. She was in favour of Remain during the Brexit referendum, and now, of course, is in charge of implementing Brexit, and actually has been welcomed by the Brexiteers within her party who have rode in behind her, possibly because they see her as having the zeal of the convert. And what, what is that that sentence in the biblical quote, the more joy in heaven when a sinner repents? I think that's <laughs> sort of where a lot of the Brexiteers in her party are coming from. But I think the way that that seems to have fitted in is essentially she wanted to be loyal to David Cameron, the then prime minister who was backing Remain. I don't know what she felt in her heart of hearts at that time, but that is the one blip I would say that doesn't quite make sense with the rest of her career in politics. It's interesting. You're saying she's been you know, very loyal to the leadership of her party. Now she is the leadership of the party. And it kind of makes you wonder what will happen now, given that there's such a new page here where everything has been thrown up in the air. And so you've had this person in charge who's been loyal to her party, but now she's leading it. And so do you have a good sense of where she takes things from here? It really has been fascinating. Even before the end of the leadership campaign, there are already briefings to some of the newspapers saying that there are people who were already putting in their letters to the chairman of the 1922 committee. And what that means for your audience, who won't be as horribly familiar with this process as I am, I think I've lost track of how many times I've seen this happen over the last few years, is there is a man within Parliament, almost the shop steward of the Conservative MPs, who collects letters of people who are not happy with the current leadership. And once those letters reach a certain threshold, there is a vote of no confidence in the leader of the Conservative Party and as a result, the Prime Minister. And then they have to get the support of half of their MPs in that vote. And I've seen that happen with Theresa May, with Boris Johnson. And now there was talk before Liz Truss even got the leadership of the Conservative Party that people were already planning to get those letters in. And she's been the leader for... (laughs) How many days now? Not many. Oh, this was before she even became leader. There were people preemptively planning it. Oh, wow. And look, that's a small minority of Conservative MPs. Anyone can see that actually most of the Conservative MPs desperately want this to work, even if they worry that it won't. They do want to remain in power. And also they do have a sense that something momentous is about to hit the country and they do need to respond in order to protect their constituents. So the the overall tone I would say from the Conservative MPs that I've spent the last couple of weeks speaking to is that they are a bit wary of whether Liz Truss can do it, but they all desperately want her to succeed for the reasons I've just set out. Huh. But it sounds like things aren't calming down. No, things really aren't calming down. And as I mentioned earlier, there has been this pause in the day-to-day ups and downs of politics. The plotting obviously has stopped because we're in this period of national mourning. But I do expect that when things return to normal, politics will become pretty challenging. After the break, more with Charlotte Ivers.
I want to really dig in a little bit around Brexit, because the vote for the UK to leave the EU was like this enormous rupture, and it increased regional tensions. And in this moment, I'm wondering how those could shift a little bit. Like I think about Scotland, which rallied for independence, for example. Like when you think about the next few months with new political leadership at Downing Street and the Queen's death, how do you think about those conversations evolving? This is really interesting because the Queen, of course, died in Scotland at Balmoral. It was her favourite place. It's a place where she felt most at home. And as I speak to you today, her coffin has just been processing down the Royal Mall in Edinburgh. Huge amounts of crowds have turned out there and a huge outpouring of feeling from a lot of people. And I can't tell. I think it's too early to tell what impact the events of the last week will have on the conversation around the union, particularly in Scotland. One thing that I did think about earliest day is that a lot of the conversations I have with politicians who are extremely pro-union and who worry about the future of the union revolve around the fact that when we had the Scottish referendum in 2014... The referendum for independence. That's exactly right, the Scottish independence referendum. The yes side on that were very emotive. They very much played into this sense of patriotic feeling, of feeling Scottish, of feeling proud to be Scottish. Whereas the no to independence side it was very based on economics and very based on concerns about Scotland's economy and the practicalities of it if Scotland did leave. And when I speak to unionist politicians, they all say they're worried about that and that they need to find an emotional side of it as well. They need to find a way of making people in Scotland feel British and feel proud to be British. And I wonder whether the events of the last week or so will have brought that sense to some Scottish people who were wavering either way, feeling part of this bigger national conversation, this bigger national moment may make some people feel a little bit more British. I I don't know, though. It it is far too early to tell. It can go both ways. It really could go both ways, exactly. And of course, the Queen is an immensely popular public figure. Her approval ratings way higher than any politician that we have seen for ever, really. And so she perhaps played quite a strong unifying role as well. So who can say what things will be like without her? Yeah. I mean, the way that I heard one analyst put it that I thought was kind of wise was conversations that were deliberately avoided out of respect for Queen Elizabeth might be more open and more accessible now, not just when it comes to Scotland, but when it comes to other places that have accepted that the crown is part of what they're about, that, you know, the queen is their sovereign and now they have a king. And I wonder what you think about that and how those sort of movements might be supercharged or even just change. Certainly there have been concerns for a while that some Commonwealth countries who do like the queen but do not have a huge amount of affection for the monarchy as an institution could choose this moment to become independent or to leave the Commonwealth or to choose a different head of state. I haven't seen anything particular on that front in the last few days. As you say, a lot of conversations of that sort have not taken place as a result of people's affection for Queen Elizabeth. And so now would absolutely not be the time for them to restart again. But certainly that is something that politicians in the UK have expressed concerns to me about in the last couple of years or so. Yeah. I mean, you can see the monarchy begin to reckon with this. Like last year, 
King Charles, who was not King Charles at the time, went to Barbados and apologized for the slavery and brutality of the past. From the darkest days of our past and the appalling atrocity of slavery, which forever stains our history, the people of this island forged their path with extraordinary fortitude. Emancipation, self-government, and independence were your waypoints. But he was there because he was marking the end of the Queen's status as Barbados's head of state. And so you can sort of see how there may be this future coming and the monarchy may have to reckon with where it's headed. Yes, and it's interesting that we had that from now King Charles, because the monarchy has been on quite a big journey over the last couple of decades, certainly since the mid-90s. There has been this attempt to almost take away some of the mysticism, take away some of this sense they are other and that they are away from the people and to make them feel more of a part of modern British life and to try and modernise them in some sense. Obviously, that's a relatively slow process and a lot of it is done in very small, subtle ways. But certainly that has been one of the things that now King Charles, obviously formerly Prince Charles, has been known for his sense that the monarchy does need to move with the times. And you can see that from Prince William as well. He clearly has that same mission in mind with a lot of what he does. Do we have a sense of how King Charles and Prime Minister Truss are going to work together right now? Like, do you do you have any thoughts about that? Well, what we did see is that Prince Charles had a meeting with Liz Truss on Friday. That was a fairly substantial meeting. It's so funny you just said Prince Charles. I just imagine it's going to be so hard to get used to saying King Charles. It is really bizarre because so many of the parts of British life do have the Queen's name woven into them. So, for example, our most senior lawyers are known as Queen's Counsel. Well, not anymore. They're now King's Counsel. Obviously, the National Hmm. Anthem, the words of that change. There are so many little bits and pieces. Our stamps will have to have a different person on them. All of the letterboxes, they have the Queen's head on them. So there are all these little things that will have to change. And yes, you're right. It will take a lot of getting used to. It's A vast proportion of the UK population, certainly including me, and I think it's about 70-75% of people have never known another monarch other than the Queen. So it it is this huge shift. And yes, I think the changes in all those little ways will be quite odd and will take a while for people to fully adjust automatically to. It's funny listening to you because the sort of premise of this conversation was... The Queen has died at this time of incredible uncertainty for the UK. But listening to how you're talking about the events of the last week or so, I do kind of wonder if the Queen's passing provides this reset moment where there's been so much tension about the economy and the costs and strikes and whether this moment of unity in the UK might impact those conversations in a positive way by having folks be more willing to come together? I think that's certainly possible, to be honest. As I was discussing earlier, we saw these tributes in Parliament on Friday and on Saturday from politicians from across the political divide. You had 
the leader of the Scottish National Party, for example, paying tribute to the Queen. You had leaders in Northern Ireland from across the political communities there paying tribute as well. And you had politicians complimenting each other's speeches from across the House. Harriet Harman, for example, a very notable Labour politician, paying tribute to Boris Johnson, former Conservative leader and prime minister's speech and watching some of the footage of the various memorial events you see the leader of the opposition the prime minister leader of the scottish national party all smiling together all grieving together and it has felt like a huge shift in tone from a political environment which was i wouldn't quite say vicious but certainly very tightly fought and very emotionally high stakes because of the various different problems facing the country Charlotte, I'm so grateful for you joining me. Thanks for talking. Thank you for having me. Charlotte Ivers is a columnist for the Sunday Times of London and a political correspondent for Times Radio, a digital radio station affiliated with the Times of London. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Del Shad, Madeline Ducharme, and Mary Wilson. We're getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips and Jared Downing. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here tomorrow.